The scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll be reading from verses 1 through 10 and 45 to 58. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have taken and by which you have your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of our first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 other brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and is the man from heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen when I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of, a, of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that it is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The string of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of God. It's Easter Sunday. On Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? It's because... All of our Christian faith, all of Christian faith hangs on the reality of the resurrection. It's why in verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul says the resurrection is of first importance. And in this passage, we're going to see three things that the resurrection of Jesus Christ does. It, one, it gives us a lasting faith. That's the meaning of Easter. Two, it gives us uh, a lasting hope. That is the the promise and the hope of Easter. And lastly, it gives us uh, a lasting power. That's the power of Easter. First, we're going to look at lasting faith. The resurrection gives us a lasting faith. Now, remember, <clears throat> Paul and the earliest Christians, they were Jewish, mainly Jewish. So they originally wanted nothing 
They originally wanted nothing to do with Christianity, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ transformed their worldview. It transformed Paul's life. And so now he's making a case for the resurrection. One, in verses three to four, he says, this is of first importance that Jesus died. He was even buried, but the tomb is empty. In other words, how do you account for the empty grave? How do you account for the empty tomb? On one hand, you have the Greeks and the Romans in these ancient times. They were the irreligious community. And their worldview was the dominant worldview in ancient society. But they believed that the body was bad. And so death is really a liberation of the soul. In other words, the idea of a bodily resurrection was not really even something that they saw desirable. The body was bad. On the other hand, you have the Jews. The Jews were the religious community. They believed that the resurrection was something that would only happen at the end of the world when there's ultimate restoration and ultimate justice and ultimate peace, right? No disease. They weren't anticipating the resurrection of the body. They weren't expecting it. They weren't anticipating it. So in a sense, for both worldviews, whether you were religious or irreligious, whether you were a Greek or a Roman or a Jew in those ancient times, the resurrection as a worldview, the bodily resurrection was neither desirable nor expected, anticipated, nor conceivable. They weren't looking for it. How then did they come up with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I mean, the disciples, they couldn't have been hallucinating because Jesus appeared to them in groups, and you can't hallucinate in groups, not the same thing at least in groups. They couldn't have been deceived because they didn't even want to believe it. There was nothing to deceive them about. They couldn't have been lying because people, yes, people unknowingly are willing to die for a lie. How many people are willing to die knowingly for a lie? And yet so many, it wasn't just a few people, so many people throughout history died, and especially in those ancient times. It goes against reason. But you have to know the epistles, they were an official public document. These letters, they weren't just letters. They were official public documents. The ancient Romans, they gave birth to what we call the modern legal, the Western legal system, which places a heavy reliance on what? One, eyewitness testimonies, and two, pu official public documents, public accounts. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 5 that Jesus appeared to Peter and the disciples. In verse 6, to more than 500 people, most of them who are still alive. It's verifiable. You can track them down, he's saying. In verse 7, James and the apostles. Verse 8, himself. He says that all of them saw Jesus, spoke to Jesus, ate with Jesus, touched Jesus, stayed with Jesus. Paul's making claims on a public record. And so he's putting his own credibility at stake. He's putting the credibility of hundreds of people at stake. Each one of them you can track down. And if there was one person that would deny or reject or discredit this public testimony, the odds all it would take for the case to be dismantled. Christianity would never have made it out of the first century. And yet it thrived. The church continued to grow. It goes against logic. But lastly, in verses 8 to 11, the Apostle Paul, he refers to his own encounter with Jesus. Paul was a Pharisee, see, a Pharisee. He was part of an intense religious community. He himself, he himself 
did not want to believe in the resurrection. Why? I mean, he didn't want to believe it to the point of being murderous. Christianity was disturbing his faith. Christianity was disturbing his, his uh, social community, his religious community, everything around it. It was ruining his life. He said, I don't want to believe. But he did. The resurrection changed his life. And now he says in verse 9, I don't even deserve to be called one of the apostles. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, it went against his own personal desires. What do you learn from this? One, you don't just come to Jesus to improve your life a little bit. You don't just come to Jesus to supplement your life. You don't come to Jesus just for a little bit of fulfillment in your life where you're a little bit dissatisfied. You don't come to Jesus just for some healing. You don't come to Jesus just to get rid of some guilt in your life. You have to first come to Jesus because it's true. Because the resurrection of Jesus is real. You have to let the reality of the resurrection of Jesus argue with your reason and your logic and your desires and your mind and your heart. Now, there are some people here inevitably who say, well, I can't believe in this kind of a God. This is the kind of God I believe in. I mean, this is the kind of God I believe in. But you have to think about this. A God that's the product, a God that's just a mere product of what you desire, a God that never challenges you, a God that never disagrees with you, a God that always agrees with you. It might make you feel good sentimentally in some way, shape, or form, but that kind of God will never be able to transform your life. That kind of God will never be able to satisfy your life. And that kind of God will never be able to save you. Why not? Think about this. How can a God that is a product of your own desires ever contradict you when you hate yourself? How can a God that is a product of your own desires ever contradict yourself when you feel ugly? Only a Jesus who is real because he rose again from the dead, who you did not want to believe, like Paul, but you are compelled to believe because of the reality of the resurrection, because it's true. When you hate yourself, when you feel ugly about yourself, only he can heal you. That when he says, I love you with an everlasting love. Only a real God, only the real Jesus, a resurrected Jesus, when you're running from God, can actually call you back. Only a real God, only a real Jesus, when you're running from God, can actually bring you back. We need that. We need that kind of validation. We need that kind of assurance in our lives. We need that reality in our lives. Now, in verse 9, Paul says, I am the least of all the apostles. How can a guy like Paul, the credibility that he had, the respect that he had in his community, how can a man like that, I mean, one person slights you just briefly, and it ruins your day. If one person just says something right now, you're walking out of this building and somebody says something and you just didn't feel good about what he said, it sits with you all day. How can a man like Paul, with that kind of arrogance, that kind of pride, and that kind of credibility and his record and all of that defining his sense of worth to the point where the small group of believers arising out of a Jewish community who came to believe in Jesus Christ that was destroying his life. How can a person like that say that I am the least of all apostles? Because only a real God can humble you like that. 
But then in verse 10, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Only a real God, only a resurrected Jesus can make you confident like that. The gospel gives you an unbreakable, an unbreakable self-image. Why? Because only through the gospel, we know that we are so sinful, only Jesus Christ could die for us. And yet, we are so loved, only he would die for us. Only he would love, only he would be willing, only he would be glad to die for us. Because he is overwhelmed by his own sin, Paul says, I am the least. And yet he is overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. And it's alive. He says, I am what I am. I'm called by grace. In verse 10, his grace to me is not without effect. Tim Keller my favorite preacher, he uses this illustration. He says this, if you commit a crime, you have a debt to society. Let's say your debt to society is two years in jail. You must go to jail. When your debt is paid, you come out. How do you know it's paid? You know it's paid because they let you out. Jesus Christ died for our sins. The debt is paid. How do we know that the debt is paid in full? He came out. Jesus Christ is out. Paul says we are no longer in our sins because of the resurrection, because of our union with Christ. Do you believe it? Let the Holy Spirit, through this text, challenge you. Let the God of all creation challenge you and argue with you and your reason and your logic In Matthew chapter 28, the text says that the angel went to the tomb, rolled back the stone only to tell the women. Now, first of all, you have to understand, when you're writing news, something that you want people to hear and believe, the last thing you want is to use women as an eyewitness because women in those ancient times, their eyewitness testimony was not even valid in a court of law in these ancient times. And yet, in Matthew chapter 28, it's women that are the first people to see the empty tomb. It's women that come back to tell the disciples. It's women who say that Jesus Christ is not there, that he has risen from the dead. You would never write fiction like that. You wouldn't want want to write news like that. The only reason why you would ever include that as a reality is what? Because it happened. Because it happened. So this angel rolls back the stone only to tell women, these women who went to the tomb, that Jesus Christ is not here, that he is risen, that Jesus Christ is gone. But think about this. If Jesus is gone, why did the angel roll back the stone? And the answer is, it's not to let Jesus out so that he could see us. It's to let us peer in so that we ourselves can see who Jesus Christ really is, so that we could be eyewitnesses, so that we would believe. The resurrection gives us a lasting faith. It's the meaning of Easter. Now, the second thing is it gives us a lasting hope. Hope for what? There are four quick things. One, a new you. Verses 45 to 52, the Apostle Paul says, we will all be changed and the dead will be raised imperishable. What does that mean? Right now, you have an earthly body. Right now, your life is like Adam's life, Adam in the Garden of Eden, broken, sinful, falling into decay, deteriorating every day, every moment. 
You take the sum of all of your positive qualities. You take the sum of your youthfulness and your beauty, your abilities and your passion, your gifts, your creativity, all of your good relationships. Take all of your gifts, all of your mental capacities, all of your senses, your emotional stability, and I want you to know right now, it's all fading. This is a mirage, it's all fading. You will not stay young forever. You will not have all your mental capacities forever. You will not have your athleticism forever. You will not have all your good looks forever. It's all fading. Entropy will eventually take over and win. But the Apostle Paul is saying here that the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures you you will be made new. It assures you of newness. One day, all of your sinfulness, your sins, your misunderstandings, the fears and the inadequacies and the insecurities, all the things that your parents tried to put on you, like a weight and a burden that you've been trying to just outwork and, and get rid of, but you can't, one day they will all be gone. All the oppression, the oppressiveness to, of your relationships, all gone. Your body will die, and then, just like a seed in spring, you will burst into eternity but only after the body splits and falls. There will be a new you, a new core in glory. And it's gonna be planted in a resurrected body and that body will burst anew and then you are gonna get a body that reflects who you were meant to be, a true you. Think about this. How does that apply to us today? What would a humbler you look like today? What would a wiser you look like today? What would a more compassionate you look like today? What would a more generous you look like today? What would a more selfless, selfless you look like today that trusts in the Lord above all things? The problem is we tend to look for newness in a house, in a job, in a career, these things were never meant, by the way, to make us new, never meant to hold the burden of all of our expectations and our desires and our hopes and our dreams. We put a tremendous amount of weight in a house, in a job, in a career, in a girlfriend, a boyfriend, having children one after another. We think this is what's going to bring me newness. It's going to increase my options and potential and freedom and joy. No, those things are all going to fade away. Paul's talking about a new core you. True options, true potential, true freedom, true joy, newness. The second thing it does, the second hope is the resurrection brings meaning to your suffering. Everyone in this room has lost something that's not actually sinful to have. But if you listen to what the Apostle Paul is saying, one day those things will be found again in a way that's going to make all of your suffering, all of your suffering worthwhile. It's going to make it worth it. In verse 54, Paul writes, death has been swallowed up in victory. In other words, before Jesus was in the grave, but he was in the grave only so that he could put death in its rightful place to unlock everything that's been tracked by the grip of death. He died to unlock that, to release and set it free. In verses 49 to 56, if you look at the resurrected Jesus, he's restored. His body is glorified now. They didn't even recognize him when he returned. How did they finally know? Thomas, the disciple Thomas said, I will not believe unless I see with my eyes his scars, unless I touch his scars. That's what he says. We know 
They knew because they saw his scars. You know what that means? Your sorrows, your pain, your suffering, what you endured, they will be intertwined with your glory one day. It's got meaning. And in verse 49, Paul says, we will bear the likeness of the man from heaven. That's Jesus. That means our losses will one day be swallowed up in victory. Death, our death, will be subsumed in the joy of victory. It will be subsumed, it will be just swallowed up. It's not to say that your suffering will be forgotten or that it's no longer, that it actually didn't happen. It'll be swallowed up in the joy of victory, of being one with Christ. And because of the resurrection, then, your suffering matters. You will bear scars. You will become like Jesus. Look at Jesus on the cross. He was completely abandoned by God. My God, my God, I've been forsaken, he says. And yet God, look at God, he was still so active. Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? And yet God, so active in Jesus' suffering. The fact is that Christ's victory, our salvation, the joy that we speak about here, it didn't come despite suffering and death. It didn't come despite suffering and humiliation and death. It came through Jesus' suffering and humiliation and death. And he was raised on the third day, and that's what God's doing. That's what God's doing, that's what God's doing in your life. Through your suffering, through our suffering, God is raising up us up as well to become more like Jesus. That's the promise of Easter. I mean, on one hand, you don't look for suffering. You don't desire suffering. But on the other hand, when that suffering comes, it will not ruin you. It cannot ruin you because the ultimate suffering has already been endured, has already been endured in Christ. It can only shape you to become more like him. When you are suffering, you are connecting with the suffering Jesus. And when you trust that God raised Jesus from the dead through that suffering, the ultimate salvation has come. Surely then through your suffering, God can redeem. Surely through your suffering and your brokenness, God can redeem you. That's what that means. The third thing is, in verses 50 to 56, the resurrection promises that the perishable would become imperishable. What that means is this. In heaven, you're not going to be ghosts. You're not going to be these ethereal beings. You're not going to be something abstract, something less than a physical being. To be imperishable means to become more material, not less material. To become more concrete, to become more physical. You are not going to decay. That's amazing if you think about it. Earthly bodies, from the moment that we're born, we become less and less of a body, even as you grow. You look at a child and he's raising, what you don't realize is that as he grows year by year, he's actually growing less and less physical, less and less material in a sense. That's what's happening. But Paul's saying that when you receive a spiritual body, you become more concrete, more whole. You'll be a fuller, wholer, complete, enabled version of yourself, the way that you were intended to be, the way that you were designed. When you go to a doctor and he says, look, you need to cut down on your fatty foods, you need to cut down on your sugars, you need to cut down on your cholesterol. Why is he saying that? He's saying that is because when you are consuming these things, when you are taking these things in, you actually are going to become less and less what you were designed to be. You think you have potential now. That potential may not be realized if you continue on in this path. 
But in verse 54, the Apostle Paul says, we will be clothed with the imperishable. We, have, we must be clothed, clothed with immortality. What does that mean? Right now, there are a lot of things because of our own limitations, our physical limitations, our mental, psychological, spiritual, just personal limitations in life. There are a lot of things that we can't do, no matter how strong you are, no matter how intelligent you are, no matter how good-looking you are, because you are perishable. You are mortal. There's this finiteness to everything that you, everything you do, every good thing that you have or do will come to an end. But someday you will be able to do so much more to make even your current gifts look like nothing. If you are a singer, you will sing even more gloriously. If you are a musician, you will play even more gloriously with perfection. But you know what that means? If you're blind, one day you will be able to gaze on the heavens. You'll be able to gaze on Van Gogh's starry night. If you are lame, one day you will be able to run marathons. Marathons. If some of us have made a habit out of just making bad decisions in our lives, one day you will never, ever have a bad thought or a bad decision in your life. You will never, ever have to make a decision based on money ever again in your life. Verse 50, the Apostle Paul says, the, perishable, the imperishable will inherit the kingdom of God. That word kingdom is the same word for administration in the Greek. And it's used primarily in the context of justice. What that means is, one day, if you're a Christian, the kingdom of God is going to come, and it's going to wipe away everything that's wrong, everything that's broken in the world. Poverty, oppression, racism, disease, war, corruption. One of my favorite books uh, if you look at the series, the J.R.R. Tolkien series, Lord of the Rings, at the end, some of you may have seen the movie, at the end, you have Frodo, he awakens. After all of evil has been defeated, he awakens. And there's Gandalf. And he says to Gandalf, he says, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. And he goes, wait, has everything wrong become undone? That is what it means when we say that the imperishable will inherit the kingdom of God. There's going to be a new society, and it's imperishable. Lastly, the resurrection promises the death of death. In verses 54 to 57, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? That word sting is a Greek word, kentron, which, uh, which it doesn't mean where, O oh, death, is your bite, or the pain, ow, yeah, the pain. That's not what he's saying. It means where, O oh, death, is your poison? Where, O oh, death, is the poison of your sting, the venom in your sting? There's a lot of bark there. We just don't feel a lot of bite anymore. In other words, when you die, it's not the pain of the bite that kills you. It's the venom, the power of the sting. So when death stings you, it's the poison of sin that goes in like a venom and kills you. But because of the resurrection, Paul says, there's no more venom. There's no more poison. When you die, there may be some pain. Yes, there's pain in dying, maybe seeing other loved ones die. Death is the enemy, and it's got venom, and that venom will take away everything that you have. But here, Paul says, death in Jesus has no sting, no venom. There's only victory.
There's no reason to fear. The gospel gives us an unshakable confidence because of that, because there's no more venom. There still may be some pain, but there's no more power in death. Now, if you don't believe that, you're going to be like Ernest Becker. Ernest Becker wrote his seminal book. It's called The Denial of Death. It was a Pulitzer Prize-winning book. He says that essentially our lives are frantic, and we are constantly running around frantic because we know one day all of this is going to come to an end. Death is poisoning our souls, so we're going to be filled with regret and guilt and fear and loss. Why? Because the venom of death is coursing through our lives. That's the decay that Paul's talking about. But the Apostle Paul here is saying, if you believe in the resurrection, there is no more sting. You can say, you can hurt me, you can, you can break me, you can kill me. You will only renew me and remake me and complete me. You will make me whole. That's resurrection hope, the hope of Easter. How do you get it? Where's the power for that? You gotta look at the cross. Who swallowed then the venom? Who swallowed the poison so that when you get bit, there is no more power in the bite when you die? Jesus Christ, when he was arrested, the disciple Peter took out a sword, and Jesus said what? Put away the sword. Why? What he's saying is, I haven't come to bring judgment. I haven't come to bring the sword. I've come to bear the sword. I've come to take on the judgment. And so he's at the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he prays, Father, must I drink from this cup? The cup that he was referring to is the cup of God's wrath, his judgment, his justice, the punishment, the penalty for our sins. He's saying, must I drink this cup? It's got the venom. It's got the poison, the poison of death, ultimate death, separation from God. He says, must I drink from it? And he does. He does drink it. In other words, Jesus came not to pour out God's cup of wrath on all of us. He comes to drink it. He comes to consume it and be consumed. He came to drink all the venom, all the poison as a penalty for our sins. So how do we bear the likeness of the man from heaven? How do we take on his likeness? Behold the man from heaven who has come to bear our likeness. How do we trust that suffering has meaning, that the perishable will become imperishable, that we will be clothed in immortality, that death will finally die? Look to Jesus Christ. Look to the cross. Look to the resurrection. Behold the man who has endured ultimate suffering, ultimate meaninglessness on the cross. Behold the imperishable one who has become perishable, so that we who are perishable will become imperishable. Jesus Christ, the fullness of God, clothed in mortality, and then he died. Why? Jesus Christ became sin so that we would become his righteousness. Jesus Christ became vulnerable, killable, mortal, became a baby. Why? So that we would become imperishable. Jesus Christ died naked on the cross. Why? So that we would be clothed in immortality. How do you stop the decay? How do you stop the venom, the venom of death in our lives? You've got to look to Jesus. He swallowed the venom of death for us. And on the cross, he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is this is the ultimate poison. This is the ultimate decay. This is the ultimate suffering and meaninglessness. My suffering has no meaning here. I'm deteriorating. I'm defeated. I have died. Why? 
so that we would have victory in him. We would have righteousness in him so that our scars and our pain and our hurt would have meaning. Jesus Christ, he was stripped naked. There was no shield between him to soften the blow of God's wrath on him. Why? So that we would have an ultimate mediator. So that we would be clothed in immortality. And do you know, even the grave couldn't hold Jesus down. The grave couldn't even hold Jesus. Death gave Jesus everything he had. And Jesus Christ, by dying, defeated death. He used death's greatest weapon. No one can escape death. And he used death to defeat death once and for all. And so Paul says, death has been swallowed up in the victory of Christ. Your guilt has been swallowed up. Your regrets has been swallowed up. Your vulnerability swallowed up. Your addictions have been swallowed up. Your broken relationships and the hurts and the betrayal swallowed up in Christ. Your failures swallowed up in Christ. Also, your arrogance and your pride and your conceit and your selfishness and your vanity all swallowed up and consumed in the joy of knowing Christ. Your fears and insecurities and your inadequacies, your broken self-image, your greatest nightmares, all swallowed up. They can be swallowed up in the joy of knowing Jesus, in the victory of the empty grave. Do you believe it? Let Paul's argument, but God's word, the Bible, let it argue with you and reason with you. The way Paul's doing here with us, let it reason with you to bring you into a lasting faith, a lasting hope, and a lasting power, the power and the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray and respond in song as we celebrate.